0: Hello, and thanks for listening to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. How is Buddhism practiced in the American South? That's the central question of Jeff Wilson's groundbreaking new book, Dixie Dharma, Inside a Buddhist Temple in the American South. The book primarily is an ethnographic survey of the Ekochi Buddhist Sangha located in Richmond, Virginia. Hello, and thanks for listening to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. How is Buddhism practiced in the American South? That's the central question of Jeff Wilson's groundbreaking new book, Dixie Dharma, Inside a Buddhist Temple in the American South. The book primarily is an ethnographic survey of the Ekochi Buddhist Sangha located in Richmond, Virginia, but it also, uh, apart from being the first major book that uh, focuses on a southern Buddhist community, It also offers a new methodology for studying Buddhism in the United States, namely a regional perspective. Regionalism is a trope that's familiar to um, historians of American religion more generally, but folks who study Buddhism in the United States have been slow to recognize some of the methodological tools of this allied discipline. Jeff does a great job of bringing a, a regional perspective to the study of U.S. Buddhism, And this book offers, like I said, the first ethnographic survey of a Southern Buddhist community, and I think really uh, brings new, uh, uh, opens up a new territory for future scholars to take seriously Buddhism in different parts of the country, and how different Buddhists adapt to and change based on their uh, regional locations. So without further ado, let's get to the interview.
1: Hi, Jeff, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you, Scott. How
0: are things up in Canada?
1: Uh, things are lovely. Uh, unexpectedly uh, hot and dry. Um, I guess uh, up here, we don't worry about the global warming quite as much. We uh, <laughs> we perhaps applaud it and, and, and desire it.
0: Sort of looking forward to a bit more balmy weather, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. Although, uh, uh, apparently, as the uh, ice packs melt, it, it forces all the polar bears south, so... Uh, when they show up in my backyard, I, I might be sitting in a different tune.
0: Right, you have you have a different, a slightly different worry than uh, those of us who live uh, very near the ocean. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I want to welcome you to the show and uh, say that uh, uh, Jeff's book is called Dixie Dharma: Inside a Buddhist Temple in the American South. Um, it's, I think, a, a really uh, a really great book, and I think it raises two very important issues. Uh, the first, of course, is your methodolo- methodological perspective of uh, bringing a perspective of regionalism to the study of Buddhism in the United States. Um, and also, it's the first, if not the only, um, ethnographic survey of a Buddhist community in the American South, which uh, is, is pretty interesting. So, um Uh, That's what we'll be talking about today. Um, But before we get into the book proper, um, as is our way here on the show, I always ask about uh, your background, Jeff, and um, how you came to the study of Buddhism, but also how you came to decide to write this book.
1: Okay, Uh, very good. Um, Thanks very much for having me on, Scott. And uh, in terms of my background and how I got into uh, studying Buddhism specifically, uh, let me think back. Well, I, um, when I went to, uh, university, I went to Sarah Lawrence College, uh, just in the, uh, New York City orbit there. And, uh, while I was there, um, there, there, uh, was a professor known as, uh, uh, Griffith Folk, T. Griffith Folk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, uh, Griffith Folk is still there. Uh, but he, he, uh, joined the college while I was uh, there during the same time. And, uh, I, I was sort of interested in, uh, Buddhism and, uh, religion in general. And, uh, here was, uh, someone with uh, uh, expertise in the the area. So um, I asked him, and he agreed to do a year of uh, independent study in Buddhist studies with me during my senior year uh, there at college. And um, so that really uh, was where I started to cut my teeth on academic Buddhist studies. Um, And uh, after I I graduated, I moved uh, down to New York City proper and uh, pretty quickly got a job with uh, Tricycle, uh, which is... uh, one of the big uh, sort of mainstream Buddhist uh, American Buddhist publications. Uh, I think the fact that I had a bit of uh, academic Buddhist studies was one of the things that intrigued him about uh, my application. And um, while I was there, you know, I started exploring the various uh, Buddhist centers in uh, New York City. And uh, I, I became interested in this sort of question of uh, what's going on with Buddhism. In the United States, uh, of course, uh, uh, everything I had studied up to that time was uh, Asian Buddhism. Uh, that's still the, um, the the backbone, of course, of uh, Buddhist studies as a, as a discipline. Um, but I started thinking, you know, one of one of the big questions, one of the classic questions in in uh, uh, the study of Buddhism, is how Buddhism went at one point from being an Indian religion to uh, being a Chinese religion. You know, ancient India, ancient China, being dramatically different cultures and civilizations, how is it that Buddhism went from being such an Indic uh, sort of uh, uh, religion to being such a quintessentially Chinese religion as well? And so it's it's just part of Chinese culture these days. Um, uh, What was that process there? This is something that, of course, uh, many people have investigated, um, and it's still uh, an interesting question to many people in the field. But uh, I started noticing how we were kind of living through the same sort of process here as Buddhism went from being an Asian religion to being a North American religion. So that process of evolution adaptation was very, very interesting to me. And, um, you know, uh, we, we made the mistake of not having a significant number of uh, trained anthropologists and ethnographers on the ground back in ancient China as, uh, as it was becoming a Chinese religion. So we kind of missed the boat on that one. And we have to just work with fragmentary textual evidence and other things like that. I thought, well, here's our chance to begin cataloging this sort of process as it actually happens, you know, live in front of our eyes. Um, and to the extent that I can catalog all this Buddhist stuff that's going on here, maybe 300 years from now, uh, some other, uh, uh, you know, scholar will be able to read back through the stuff I collected, and uh, they'll be able to figure out this process much better because somebody was documenting it at the time. Of course, um this led me in a couple of directions. One, it, of course, led me to read the other people who were working in this field, such as uh, uh, Charles Prevish and, and other people who were publishing around this time in the late and later 90s. Um, and it also led me just out into the field itself. And uh, I ended up uh, writing a book um, uh, called uh, The Buddhist Guide to New York, where I went and uh, visited uh, uh, many of the uh, 300 or so Buddhist groups and temples in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut area. And, uh, produced this book, it just kind of on my own. It, was, it wasn't a scholarly book. And I, I, at that time, had no intention of going to grad school. Uh, it was a kind of a foreign idea to me. I was just doing this because I thought, hey, let's, uh, let, let's do this project and, uh, make that information available, not just to people in New York at that time, but make it available so, so that somebody a few hundred years from now will be able to pick up that book and say, okay, this is the snapshot of what Buddhism looked like in New York at that time. And now here, you know, uh, as I'm sitting, in my uh you know office at the uh, university of mars i can uh i can i can see uh, uh how Buddhism has changed since then in the New york area and uh you know they might might get something out of that anyway so I did that project on my own that was just an independent project published that book um with uh, St. martin's press and then um I happened to move to North Carolina to Chapel Hill where my grandmother was living and and uh moved in uh to take care of her and um Then I happened to uh, uh, run into a a scholar who was there teaching at Chapel Hill uh, named uh, Thomas Tweed. And uh, Tom Tweed, of course, uh, uh, is someone who uh, wrote a very uh, influential, important book about uh, the sort of the first stages of American Buddhism back in the uh, uh, 19th century and very early 20th century. And, uh, you know, we just fell to talking and uh, somehow I ended up... uh, applying to the graduate school and, and was accepted there into the PhD program. So I studied with uh, Tom Tweed uh and also um, down down uh, the road with uh, Richard Jaffe at Duke uh, because um uh those programs the Duke and uh Chapel Hill uh PhD programs uh share a lot of their resources with one another. And um did this uh project on um uh, well my my uh I should say my master's work, uh, the thesis I did for them. Was the first initial work I did with this Ekoji Buddha Sangha of Richmond, which is uh, at the heart of this uh, Dixie Dharma book. But I moved on to a different project for my PhD, uh, working on uh, uh, the American adaptations of Japanese post-abortion rituals and uh, then moved on to other projects afterwards. But I, even though I had done the thesis and then published back, I um, still continued to visit with Ekoji and uh, continued to uh, collect ethnographic data with them. And now, uh, in the meantime, I moved out to California to Los Angeles, where my wife took a job at UCLA. Um, and uh, I started thinking, now I've seen Buddhism in New York, and I've seen it in the South, such as there is. And now I've seen it in Los Angeles, which makes even New York look like, uh, 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 you know, it doesn't have as much Buddhism and as much Buddhist diversity. So I really began, because of these different life experiences of living in different places, I began to notice how buddhism was so different in many many different parts of america and how this this master narrative of american buddhism which was evolving out of the scholarship that uh, uh prevish and tweed and others were doing uh, during this time period all very good work very important work but um in a way we, we kept talking about american buddhism and just this kind of uh you know uh static way that it was, there was one thing called American Buddhism, or there was maybe one thing that, Ameri- that Buddhism in America was evolving towards, where people were seeking, and uh, I just started noticing it's just so different to be a Buddhist in the South than it is to be one in New York, and even in Los Angeles, the Buddhism there is different from the Buddhism in New York, even within the same uh, lineage. So these were the things that set me off on that uh, regionalist path and uh what do you know eventually I, I decided decided to uh, develop this uh, book project out of that uh, observation
0: so this uh that's a great segue into the book then um uh, the, the 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 idea of regionalism I think is um, one of the major contributions this book makes to the field of American Buddhist studies or Buddhism in the West or however we want to to frame that and i and I think it's interesting your comment about uh earlier scholarship that tries to figure out what this thing American Buddhism is as if there's one thing, and I, I feel like this is related to uh, the – as you're also saying about how there's a, a sort of quintessentially Chinese – that Chinese religion is, is, is part of uh, – or Buddhism is part of Chinese religion. So we can have this sort of Chinese Buddhism versus American Buddhism versus Japanese Buddhism. Um, and, I, and I feel like you've hinted at that in this book. Um, as, as perhaps one of the things that's lacking in the study of American Buddhism, um, that we're looking for a sort of unique American Buddhism and the regionalism trope, uh, contradicts that. So, um uh, without further ado, um, please give us your, uh, your methodological, uh, perspective here about regionalism and, and where it comes from, because it, it definitely comes from outside of Buddhist studies proper. Am I correct?
1: Yeah. I, I would say that, um, uh, regional, regional studies for me is um, uh, connected to American religious history, mm-hmm. which officially is the discipline that I was trained in at uh, UNC and, and Um I also did uh, significant coursework and other work in Buddhist studies as well. Um, and my position is in East Asian religion uh, here at the uh, University of Waterloo. But uh, you know, Tom Tweed and others who I was working with, uh, at the end of the day, they're Americanists and that, that was their own training. And um, the study of Regional influences on religion in the United States, this is a, a venerable um, uh, sort of uh, approach here. It goes back uh, to the to the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, people were talking at that time, you know certainly you had um, uh, the frontier. this was one of the things people looked at and how, uh, as the frontier uh, moved uh, westward, how religion was changed in that experience, people of course looked at religion in the north and versus the south. And, uh, there was this thing, you may have heard about it, the Civil War, where, uh, religion played a major, uh, uh, part and was quite different. Even the same religions, you know, uh, Methodism, Presbyterianism, uh, uh, Baptism and so on, they schismed North and South and had different practices, uh, because of different regional cultural, uh, influences upon those same religions. Um, of course, New England, where I was born and grew up that that's that's a uh been a a region a definable region for a long time and so i you know already had some of that thinking in there as well um, and my family is southern uh by heritage so uh gr- you know bouncing back and forth between New England and the south for uh the school year versus uh you know vacation times you know I, uh, become aware also of uh what a regional thing uh American culture is and therefore what a regional thing American religion is. Many scholars have noted this, but I didn't see it appearing very commonly and certainly to no uh, level of sort of thorough investigation in the work on American Buddhism. And I think that's because most of the people who were doing those studies uh, were trained in, in Buddhist studies or in Asian studies or some, some cognate field like that. Um, they had very sophisticated things to say about uh, uh, Buddhist phenomena in that way, but they didn't have the training in American religious history. Um, They just had experience with American religion, which sometimes served them well, and other times, of course, um, there might have been blind spots. So um, I wanted to bring to bear this uh, trope that comes out of American religious history, which, of course, is primarily focused on the study of Christianity, and then apply it to Buddhism or Buddhist studies. Uh, So these seem like two very different fields, American religious history on the one hand, Buddhist studies on the other hand. But I really like to filter from both of them and find out what sort of creative things uh, uh, come about through the sort of conjunction of these these two fields. Um, Anyway, so so looking at regionalism in American Buddhism, that's that's what I'm doing now uh, in order to uh, uh, show us how there is indeed uh, Buddhism operating on, I would say, many different levels. Actually, maybe this is an important point that I should make at this uh, uh, moment. It isn't that all Buddhism is always and only and most importantly regional. That's not my argument. It's just that regions often come to play an important role in the Buddhism that's going on. Mm. So you can look at American Buddhism in the mass sense. You can look at it on a national level. And there are times when that's certainly appropriate to do. You can also look at it, of course, in the transnational sense. And it's important to do so sometimes for some studies. Uh, uh, and then you can look at it at the intensely local level as well. Sometimes that matters. But people have talked about it in these kind of various ways. They tend to talk about it at the national and more recently the transnational level. Very occasionally I talk about it at the micro local level. But we never talked about the regional. So to me there was a, there was a fundamental piece of the puzzle that was missing. Um, so I'm not looking to, to uh, supplant uh, national or especially transnational narratives of modern Buddhism, but rather to say, hold on, this situation is even more complicated than we're acknowledging right now. Uh, we need to look down uh, uh, at the regional level and see what's going on there as well. So uh, I hope that we'll continue to carry out uh, research at all these various levels and to see how um, uh, really Buddhist groups are impacted by forces that are operating at all of these levels. Every temple exists in a certain place. And that means the, the very local things come to bear on it. That place, of course, is part of a region. And cultural uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, environmental and other regions in the U.S. can be very impactful on American religion, including Buddhism. So we need to pay attention to those. But, of course, they're also subject to federal laws and, and things going on at the national cultural level. And, of course, Buddhism is always transnational as well. So there's all these different flows that we need to account for. And uh, I'm just trying to bring our gaze to bear on one that thus far nobody's investigated.
0: Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm totally with you. I mean, in my own studies, I think that it's important to look at these various levels. And uh, we we do ourselves a disservice by being too rigid in our methodologies and just sticking to one narrative. So I, I greatly appreciate that uh, you're bringing this other lens onto the study of uh, uh, Buddhism in the, in the U.S. Um, so so uh, earlier you mentioned the sort of regions that we all know, like New England or the South. Um, do you have regions for American Buddhists?
1: Yeah, I, I do. Um, because this is a first attempt to uh, describe what this might be, I've, I've made a suggestion about how we might carve up United States into uh, uh, seven or eight different regions. But then in the book, as soon as I've done that, I then immediately offer some other possibilities. And I think in the uh, the conclusion, I offer yet some other possibilities. And um, the reason for that is that um, regions are formed, of course, uh, because of uh, uh, conditions that exist in those areas. But at the same time, Regions are always, of course, a product of what we're looking for in the first place. Uh, that's true uh, at the national level. That's true at the regional level. Um, so that uh, we could draw uh, various different regions depending on what uh, factors or influences are most interesting to us or what are most uh, useful in whatever study we're doing at the time. So I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, this is exactly the way that we must carve up the u s into Buddhist regions, and that um, this is the way everyone should use regions for their particular projects, but I thought I needed to provide some sort of initial map that we can use and then uh, we can always uh, adapt the you know move the lines and, and adapt the uh, the types of regions we're looking for to suit uh, everybody's different projects that they're doing uh, if I haven't made it clear already uh, i'm I'm not uh, in this project or in other projects. I- I'm not inclined to argue for master narratives or this is the way. For it. Rather, uh, to me, theories such as regionalism and the other theories that we work with also, uh, two Buddhisms, three Buddhisms, all these various things that come up in the study of American Buddhism, the utility is in their application. Hmm. So um, for some projects, they have powerful you know, explanatory uh, usage and for other projects, they're just not as useful. Um, it's not that there are only two Buddhisms, or only three Buddhisms, or only five Buddhisms, or you know whatever. It's that always these are a product of what we're looking for, and it's mm-hmm. the same with religions as well. So um, that's not a problem, unless we—I'll uh, pull out a you know Buddhist joke here. Unless we become deeply attached to this is the way it is and how we must do it, and we refuse to change it. But as long as we we just bring these uh, different theories uh, uh, to bear. Um, in, the, in however way appropriate to the particular project we're doing, then, then these become very useful. Um, uh, the more theories, the better, as far as I'm concerned, because each of them will illuminate something that the others might not, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, back to the regions, though. That's what you asked me. What sort of regions do I propose? Well, um, obviously, the West Coast, that's going to be a, a pretty obvious uh, region, and uh, Buddhism in that area. Uh, tends to be uh, relatively strong, tends to have a relatively longer history, tends to have a relatively more diverse Buddhist uh, uh, ecosystem, if you will. Um, It is, of course, uh, physically more proximate to uh, 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 Asia, where Buddhism is strongest. Um, It tends to have uh, the largest, or one of the largest uh, uh, Asian American populations, and so on and so on and so on. So um, this is a pretty obvious region. And many other places in the U.S. differ from the West Coast in terms of their Buddhist phenomena. And therefore, you you need to call it out as a specific place, rather than making the West Coast representative of American Buddhism, again, that big category there, which is a lot of what we were doing before. Uh, Most of our studies, most of our ethnographies, whether they were published in a book form or whether they're just uh, theses or dissertations that haven't ever reached that wider audience, um, as well as many of our articles and things like that in the field. Um, much, much, much of the field work tends to be done on the West Coast. Um, this is pretty obvious why that might be. But then when we use that to represent American Buddhism, we can be in real trouble because uh, they're representing almost like an ideal state for American Buddhism there, for Buddhism in the U.S., uh, something that um, the large majority of Americans live in somewhere very differently, uh, very different from, uh, the West Coast in terms of the amount of Buddhism that's available at their fingertips, or at least within a reasonable drive. So the West Coast, obviously, that's gotta be one. Um, another one I suggest is, uh, the mountains, uh, which is kind of like, uh, the next, the next one over, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is an area that, uh, being next to the West Coast also early had some, uh, uh, Asian, uh, uh, migration into that area. Uh but uh generally this is an area which we see uh, uh significantly less uh Buddhist representation. Um also environmentally it tends to uh be its own sort of unique uh corridor there, uh, you know, the Rockies and, and their foothills and such. Um so that uh you know just environmentally I think has has an influence on religion and so it's something we should uh pay attention to. I also talk about the southwest as being yet another sort of separate area um again environmentally it's different but also the mix of buddhisms tends to be different there as well uh this is one place um that a lot of uh buddhist retreat centers are being uh developed some of them you know out in the desert uh away from uh, uh everybody else uh, There's some significant ones um even including uh of course uh, the diamond mountain one which mm-hmm. is recently in the news because of a unfortunate uh, uh event uh, which occurred there so um this is an area also that many uh Buddhist uh, possibly with the new age influences have come to see that area as kind of an a kind of inherently sort of power place or spiritual area. Um I note that uh, back when Tricycle was doing their uh, uh so called Buddha bus uh tours of American Buddhism, that's <laughs> the region that they chose to uh uh target as uh, a place to market uh, uh Buddhist tourism hmm. in the US so um seemed to be its own sort of region. Then we have the plains. Um, again, this is, uh, I guess we're basically moving more or less eastward here. Uh, the narrative of American Buddhism usually moves from east to west, but the narrative of, uh, American Buddhism, uh, as, uh, Laurie Mathley Kip, a scholar, uh, once noted, tends to move from, uh, west to east. So we've got the plains, uh, you know, uh, environmentally, uh, very different from the regions we've just talked about. Um, and in terms of Buddhists, well, there's really not so many of them. Now we've really sort of taken a real uh, nosedive in terms of the numbers and uh, uh, diversity of uh, Buddhist groups that are represented in that area. There are some that are there, certainly. Um, Everywhere you go in the U.S. these days, you look hard enough, you can find some Buddhists or some Buddhist influence at least. But uh, the plains are are mostly a pretty big empty space for, for Buddhist groups compared to certainly the West Coast, but even to the Southwest and other places. Um, I also talk about, uh, the Midwest as, uh, as another Buddhist region. Um, this is a place where, uh, certainly centering on the urban, uh, Midwest, places such as Chicago, um, there has been since, uh, the 19th century, a, a pretty good, uh, Buddhist, um, uh, presence there and, and a particular diversity of, uh, groups that have, uh, come up there. Um, and of course, we, we need to have the Northeast, uh, which I tend to Sort of draw a line, not just New England, but the Northeast, you know, including New York State, New England, going down the uh, Atlantic seaboard, uh, down to, uh, you know, approximately maybe, uh, D.C. and, and maybe even the, the, the uh, northern Virginia suburbs around D.C., Alexandria and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's to me is a, is another region. Uh, it's the furthest away from the, uh, from Asia. Uh, it has a, a different, uh, sort of ethnic mix. Uh It has, um, in general, people like to say, that has a, a relatively uh, liberal sort of cultural, social, and, and political uh, uh, stance. Um, so that certainly affects things. And um, one thing I should note is that uh, these regions I'm talking about, often they have particular Buddhist regional networks that have grown up in them. So that's one reason why I'm carving things this way. Uh, when you look, for instance, at the Midwest, there's a number of lineages that are primarily spread in the north, uh, in, in the Midwest from, uh, uh, places that, uh, you know, coming radiating out of, uh, Chicago or in some cases, uh, uh, out of the Rochester Zen Center and places like that, moving through the Great Lakes area and, um, uh, forming particular local networks of these lineages. Same with the Southwest. We find groups that are there that don't have much presence elsewhere and so on. Um, obviously the South is going to be a big one uh for for me and for my particular studies here, since that's where I've done so much of my uh field work, especially for this uh project. Um the South, what can we say? Not a lot of Buddhists, not a lot of Asian Americans, although that has changed somewhat in recent years, but it still lags behind other areas. Um and uh the surrounding uh religious culture is very noticeable and it directly impacts the Buddhists in many cases, who live in that region. Uh, You know, Southern religion is changing. It is more diverse than a lot of people realize, but it's still strongly evangelical Protestant. Mm -hmm. And that's an evangelical Protestantism that actively, robustly, confidently pushes itself at all times into the public sphere so that it it, it is inescapable. Um, Buddhism, uh, excuse me, Christianity, including evangelical Christianity, is present in all the areas we've talked about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, for most people on the West Coast, it's not a really daily reality. Or for people, in, you know, in, in the, uh, uh, say, in, in, in the Northeast or something like that, evangelical Protestantism is a pretty daily reality uh, if you live in the South, especially in, in, in many particular regions there. So... Sometimes. um
0: Go, go, right, ahead, Scott. So then, so then, while we're, while we're, while we've, while we finally reach the, the South, um, what is it about the South that you think creates a, a unique, uh, Buddhism of the South? What is it about the, the Buddhism that is there that, um, that, that makes it, uh, different, uh, noticeably different or in practice or, or, or whatnot, um, from other parts of the country? Okay. Well,
1: there's, there's kind of a lot of different factors. Some of them I know it's awkward. not an easy question, but. <laughs> I even again, I say the South, and then in the book I immediately break it into the coastal South, mm-hmm. and the, these are these are just terms I'm coming up with. Um, sometimes the coastal South, be a couple hundred miles anyway. So you know, <laughs> uh, 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 descriptive in a very broad sense, since this is again uh, our first preliminary work on regionalism, uh, especially uh, uh, Southern Buddhism. Yeah. But um in general, here's what we can say about Buddhism in the South. Yeah. Um, It exists uh, in in a sea of evangelical Protestantism in a way that uh, most other places uh, uh, don't really manifest that. It exists in a place where religion is very much in the public sphere and where the first question that a stranger is quite likely to ask you is, what church do you go to? Um, There's really not a lot of other places in the U.S. where that's really uh, uh, quite possibly the first question you'll get out of someone. Especially if you've just moved to the neighborhood to the town and taken a job, people will go ahead and ask you about that sort of stuff. It's a basic way of forming um uh social attachments is to inquire about people's churches and uh it begins to fit them into your sort of um mental uh math as a southerner to try to figure out who this new person is and how you should relate to them. Um, it's not simply um uh they're not necessarily trying to push their religion on you. Um rather, uh you know, in some ways, they're, they're, they're looking for a way to, um, find common ground with you so that you can, uh, begin to form a friendship in this sort of way. Anyways, there's the, very much that public Christianity you have to deal with. Other things, um, you have a different racial mix in the South and in many places. And you especially have a very particular racial history. Mm. This, this is, uh, manifest in a few ways. Of course, we have, uh, the, the history of, uh, you know, um, Sort of, uh, uh, intense slavery. Uh, there was slavery in many parts of the U.S., uh, but the South really developed it as, as an entire way of life, uh, centered, a culture centered around the, uh, uh, industry of slavery. Uh, and then you had, uh, legal segregation and the battles to protect that. Uh, these, these really, uh, influenced the culture in particular ways. And even though, um, of course, that legal, uh, segregation is, uh, uh, pretty much behind us at this point. Um, there's many repercussions that lead up uh, to the present. Uh, we shouldn't stereotype the South, of course, as being monolithically uh, racist, repressive, or somehow intensely worse than the rest of the U.S. Uh, even on the West, which I just characterized as relatively uh, a, a, you know, almost paradise uh, for American Buddhism in some ways, uh, there's a long, long history of uh, 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 exclusion and oppression of uh, Asian Americans and their uh, particular religious traditions on the West Coast. Nonetheless, we have to say the South, well, it's, uh, it's a different it, kind of <laughs> it's a different history. Southerners have often been uh, quite proud of. Um, yeah. I say this as someone with a very long Southern lineage in my own family, uh, including some of the people who, uh, uh, well, let's just say, uh, fought on the losing side. So, um, you know, I've, I've observed these people and uh, lived amongst them and have some sense for how they understand the South. Another thing that's different, of course, is the, the relatively low level of Asian-Americans, the particular mix of Asian-Americans and their religions that we see. Uh, for instance, the Gulf Coast, uh, lots of Vietnamese in that area. Uh, this is one of the primary places for Vietnamese-Americans uh, uh, to settle uh, or to uh, uh, migrate to, um, is the Gulf Coast. Not the only one, of course. We see people in California and other places, but uh, that part of the South, very much so um and again there are particular networks of uh buddhist groups in the south that you don't necessarily find in other parts of the US and then on the other hand many of the groups that we think of as the representatives of american buddhism uh, such as the san francisco zen center and uh shambala and such like these many of them are relatively weak uh in the south so they they turn out to be rather than american buddhisms they turn they turn out to be regional American Buddhisms themselves once we look at the South, when we realize that San Francisco Zen Center, the Suzuki lineage, is, is so poorly represented in the South, which is an enormous geographic area, also a very large uh, uh, population area. Um, and yet there's only just a handful of Suzuki teachers uh, publicly teaching in that area, compared to the dozens and dozens and dozens that we can find in California and other regions. Mm-hmm. So as many that produce this particular sort of South. Um, uh, there, we can, of course, talk about the climate as well. Uh, climate and uh, topography and all these things have a real impact on uh, how religions play out. And uh, there's, you know, it's it's hot. <laughs> it's just hotter, apparently. So uh, uh, that that influences things as, as well. Um, or we can say in colder regions, they're influenced in ways that the Southern uh, Buddhists don't have to take into account this is not the entirety. There's other reasons I discuss in the book, but just to give you some examples of things that are different about the Southern Buddhist um, uh, experience or Southern B- Buddhist uh, context uh, that I think are worth noting. Mm-hmm.
0: So then to, uh, to take this even further, the heart of your book is um, an ethnographic survey of the Ekoji uh, Sangha in Richmond, Virginia. Um, so uh, to give our listeners some understanding the Ekoji, Sangha is is really quite unique and special in a lot of ways, uh, compared to uh, you know, the the Buddhism that I experience on a day to day basis here in California. Um, in that there are many different groups that cohabit the same space. Um so tell us a little bit about the history of this group and how it came to how it came to be, how it ended up in, in Virginia of all places, um and, and who these different groups are who um uh, practice together, or not together, um, as the case may be, um, in this one physical location.
1: Okay, very good. So um, uh, th- this uh, book, Dixie Dharma, it, it's based on sort of uh, fieldwork done at a at number of different levels. So um, at the heart of it is this uh, long-term ethnographic research on this multi-denominational Buddhist temple, uh, the Koji Buddhist Sangha of Richmond, Richmond, Virginia. Richmond is the uh, The capital of uh, Virginia, it was the capital of the Confederacy back during the Civil War and so on. So it has a particular uh, identity even within the region of the South. Um, It's a place where um, Southern culture and Southern traditions are are especially held up. Um, So there is the investigation of that particular temple, which happens to have multiple groups at it. Very interesting. And then, of course, I've investigated Buddhism in Richmond more widely. I've visited all the Buddhist groups there multiple times. I've investigated Buddhism more broadly in Virginia and in the, you know, the, the, uh, the Southeast, you know, in North Carolina and other places. And then, of course, throughout the South. But, uh, I would say, you know, sort of these are, exp- as the circles expand, there's less and less intense field work at, at each level. Hmm. So here at the Koji, this is where I've really put in the most, uh, hours and, and, and uh, the most investigation. So what is this temple? Well, um, it started off as a as a Jodo Shinshu Piran temple in the uh, in the uh Buddhist Churches of America's uh, uh tradition. Uh back uh, uh in the early nineteen eighties, um uh, uh bishop uh uh Suji, who was uh, one of the most important and long serving bishops of the uh, BCA, um he uh he retired uh, at the end of the nineteen uh, seventies and he moved uh to the uh, Washington DC area. So he found uh the first BCA temple in the South in that area. Uh even though he was an older person by this time, he was retiring from being a bishop and everything. Uh he'd had a long career in various uh places, starting in Canada, he was originally Canadian, um uh he still had this drive for um you know uh what would you call it? Um evangelize it mm-hmm. as a as missionizing. He was a missionary priest as there have been a great many uh, missionary uh, Buddhists in the past. So um, he recognized that the uh, uh, there was no Buddhist temple, no, no BCA temple, in the uh, uh, Washington area, so in the area of the uh, nation's capital. And uh, that in general, uh, BCA, uh, while very strong in the West, was very weak in the East. So he moved out there, and he got this temple started, in the uh, in the uh, Virginia suburbs of uh, of D.C., so this was the first B.C.A. temple in that area. Well, once he got to that area and founded that temple, he began to think about Buddhism in the South in general and how there were no B.C.A. temples there. Indeed, back in the uh, uh, early mid 1980s, very few Buddhist temples anywhere in the South. Hmm. Um, uh, Naturally, because he was there, the Buddhists who did exist started to uh, uh, send, you know, requests to, to the, now the Northern Virginia Temple. Now that it was publicly available and people, people could kind of see that, oh, there's a minister there and we could, uh, we could maybe have him come visit us. So he started to, uh, uh he basically transformed himself into a, a Buddhist uh, circuit rider. It was like the old, Methodist uh, Methodists and other, uh, circuit riders of the 19th century who spread, uh, uh, evangelical religion, uh, throughout the U.S. and especially through the South. So he would, uh, periodically go to all these different places in the South where there were a few Buddhists, at least, who had written to him and said, Hey, if you come through our town, we'll put you up and, and, uh, we'll, we'll get some friends together and we'll, we'll hold a Buddhist service and we'll discuss the Dharma here. So, uh, the first place where this occurred was in Richmond. Richmond's about, uh three, three and a half hours, I guess, south of, uh, Washington, D.C. It really depends on what the traffic's like, really. Uh, that, but uh, it can be pretty bad. So it's a few hours, anyways. Let's say from uh, Washington, and so he would drive down there uh, and uh, meet with these uh, Brutus in Richmond who had reached out to him. Uh, they didn't typically have their own temple or anything there, and uh, at first they were actually meeting over at the uh, at the Quaker meeting house because Quakers would give him some space for free, and um, and he would meet with them. And he would go on deeper into the South. He could see North Carolina. Been down to Georgia, Florida, and eventually go out to Texas and making this big circuit, this big loop, um, meeting with Buddhists in these areas and sort of counseling them. And then he'd return back up to Northern Virginia and started all over again. So, um, in Virginia, uh, in, in Richmond, rather, they got enough people together, um, that they thought, well, Hey, we'll, we'll be able to found a second temple here and uh, we'll call it a Koji. And, um, they got some money uh, uh, from uh, some uh, philanthropic uh, Buddhists on the West Coast connected with BCA. They were able to buy a house and set up a BCA temple. And uh, that that was their idea. This is going to be the first temple that was basically not on a Japanese-American uh, 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 cultural or ethnic base. Because all the other temples in BCA had always begun as Japanese-American, very strongly Japanese-American temples. But there are very few Japanese Americans in uh, Richmond, especially in the 1980s, and uh, so they were starting up with uh, mostly, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, Euro Americans, uh, many of them of uh, quite venerable uh, Southern extraction. There, so uh, they started this uh, what we might call a white, you know, pure and there. And um, after a few years, uh, they they started to invite other groups uh, to visit uh, uh, the temple and to actually attend the temple with them. Um, so a Zen group got started there, because um you think about it, Reverend Suji was only coming through Richmond uh, maybe uh, a couple times a month, right? So most of the time, the temple wasn't really being used. So the Zen group started using it on an alternate day, uh, on uh, Sunday mornings, actually, and um, then eventually, then a Tibetan group got started there, and uh, and so on and so on, and they have a Pasna group that came and joined them, so that um, because they planted this temple there, and because they were willing to share this space, which was, you know, relatively underused uh, during the course of the entire week, because there was no local minister, there was the only a guy who came to town occasionally, um, that set up this situation where you had all these Buddhist groups sharing one temple. Um, these days, there's five of them, as a matter of fact. They have uh, the original Land group, which is sort of transformed from being Zilva Shinshu, into a more generic kind of pure land temple, with, uh, a pure land group with many Chinese influences. And um, they have a, a Kagyu Tibetan group, a, a Soto Zen group, which is affiliated with the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, and they have a, a Vipassana group. And uh, these days they have a kind of a non-denominational uh, meditation group, um, uh, so, somewhat uh, based on a Tony Packer's style of sort of post-Zen, uh, medicine, uh, coming out of her, uh, Springwater, uh, retreat center in, uh, upstate New York. So you got five groups, one temple. They all, they all share that temple. All their donations go into that temple and, and they, they share it together. Um, quite an unusual situation. But I think part of it is because of the region. Um, you had all these little Buddhist groups that could not survive on their own. None of them were large enough to rent or own their own spaces anywhere. Um, but together collectively, they could maintain this space. And, um, they also share a lot of membership amongst each other. So co- together, they create a sort of critical mass and they're pushed together because they find that as Buddhists in the South, even though they're very different types of Buddhism, um, being Buddhist makes them all much more similar to each other than they are to any of the Christians who are their, their neighbors and this sort of thing. So that, um, in other places where they might say, I am Zen and I'm going to do Zen and this is going to be a group for Zen people and we're going to go off and do our own sort of thing. Um, here, they really are pushed to look for commonalities rather than distinctiveness. And um, uh, because they, they often visit each other groups, often they're members of multiple groups, um, they start to develop kind of hybrid practices in this uh, shared space here, which I, I think are rather uh, interesting.
0: So that's that's that raises my next question. What do you think some of the implications are to the way Buddhism is practiced when you have this sort of hybridity and, uh, as you call it, pluralism in, in this one community? How does that change people's perspective or practices?
1: Well, it certainly does uh, affect them pretty directly. Now, not every single member of this temple is going to have a hybrid practice. Um, some people only go to one group. They prefer to stick with one group. They often have already. Connections in the same lineage outside of the Virginia area, even outside of the South. Um, so, for instance, they maybe they came, they moved from the San Francisco Bay Area to Richmond to take a job, perhaps, and they were also associated with the San Francisco Zen Center. So that's what's really comfortable to them, and so they're going to go to that Soto Zen group that meets at a koji, and they're going to be less likely to go attend one of the other groups because to them, Pure Land Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism just a big question mark. It's not It's not their thing. So you absolutely have that as a, as one type of experience in this. I mean, not everybody's a hybrid Buddhist. Not everyone's a pluralistic Buddhist. But on the other hand, many other people at this sort of temple convoc- do attend other groups uh, because they're right there in their physical proximity. I mean, some of their same friends are going to the other groups. That the wood of these groups is lying all around everywhere, so you can't avoid it the icons of the different groups are all grouped together on the mantle on the altar all these places there in the temple so you you encounter it continuously and if you're a bit open to it or whatever circumstances drive you towards it you very easily begin to mix and adapt the different types of buddhisms into your personal practice so that um, there's people there for example who um in their in their daily practice perhaps They'll get up in the morning and they may sit, uh, zazen in a soto, you know, shikantaza, uh, manner for a while. And then they may begin to do, um, their, uh, Tibetan derived, uh, prostate, prostration practices and, uh, mantras and this sort of thing. And then, uh, afterwards, uh, maybe they'll do a bit of a metta, uh, loving kindness meditation that they learned from the insight meditation group. Um, and this would be what their daily practice looks like. It's all together, uh, um, and they don't easily tease these strands out either. It's even a bit of artificial for me to say, well, this is the Soto Zen segment of their day, and this is the Tibetan segment of their practice and everything. We can trace out where those things originally came from. But once they become in conversation with each other, you know, within the uh, body or practice or mind of that same person, um, they begin to uh, blend in, in ways where it becomes much harder to say what's exactly discreetly one element uh, of one thing or, or another. Um, so then, of course, these people who have exposure to more than one thing, they attend other groups, or they at least go out to dinner with friends who are in other groups, you know, the temple's a, a real place to socialize as well, and they naturally talk about what they're doing. So that even if I'm a member of, um, let's say the, the, the Zen group, and I never go to the Tibetan group, nonetheless, other people on Sunday morning sitting Facing the wall on, on, on the Zafus, um, some of those other people are the Tibetan group or the Pure group or whatever. And when we have our book discussion afterwards, even if we're discussing, say, um, the platform Sutra of the sixth patriarch, um, people bring perspectives to bear on it and I will hear them and be exposed to them or Pure Land, uh, Buddhist, uh, uh perspectives and this sort of thing. So naturally you get this kind of uh hybridity that develops. And then the interesting thing about this pluralism is that it comes about originally just because of circumstances. Financial circumstances, and low uh, membership numbers and other things drive the Buddhists together out of necessity. They're not there because they said, oh, I need to find a temple with five different groups. I refuse to go to any group that has leading beauty they go there because of circumstances. And yet, over time, existing in this area where they rub up against each other and each other, come to positively um, evaluate uh, uh, this sort of thing. So they become pluralistic in their attitudes, not just the, to the bare fact of their practice. So they come to say, Buddhism is best practiced for multiple lineages. And um, uh, the best way to pursue the Dharma is. Uh, um, uh, all the different Dharma doors, and uh, um, you know, try to combine them in some way which works best. And Buddhism should be pluralistic, and it should—we um, should think about Buddhism broadly, and everyone being in the same Buddhist family, rather than being attached to our particular lineage or teacher or something like that. So there's a, there's an attitude shift that occurs here, not just a, uh, a practice shift. But the funny thing is that we often assume that the attitude might lead people into pursuing multiple uh, dharma doors and therefore uh, developing a hybrid practice, it seems to actually often operate in the opposite way. People become hybrid, whether they notice it or not, and then they are led into pluralistic attitudes as an evolution of that path.
0: So, uh, I, I wanted to, um, have you speak a little bit about the, one of the last chapters of the book is, um, a particular kind of practice that I think is most obviously to the casual reader anyway, something that could only happen in the South. And that is, uh, this uh, event that was the slave trade meditation vigil. Um, that th- this chapter I found to be extremely, uh, powerful and moving just in terms of the, the, the motivations behind this, uh, practice. Um, and, you know, again, I think this really speaks to uh, uh, something that can only happen in the South, right? Um, so if you could just uh, walk us through what the slave trade meditation vigil was, and um, and and is this something that happens uh, continually? Is it still happening now, or was it just a one-time thing? Um, and what kind of uh, influences this might have on how Buddhism is practiced in the South?
1: Very good. Okay. So um, yeah, I, d- I do think this is very particularly subtle this ritual, but it's it's also a, immediately you can see the connections to other sorts of similar rituals that have occurred or do occur um, elsewhere. So um, the Slave Trade Meditation Vigil is um, a, a particular meditation vigil that um, uh, Ekoji uh, performed in 2000 uh, in a few years. They haven't repeated it since then, so it's not clear whether this will be an ongoing practice or not. It was um, uh, something that was very noteworthy for the temple at the time. Many people have talked about it since then. It had a big impact, um, uh, not just on the people who went there, but, you know, it's something that many people in the larger Sangha have discussed, uh, uh, you know, over time. Um, and I think there is some interest in repeating it, but, um, uh, logistically, it's not always easy to put these together. So let's, let's talk about this uh, event that they did do. So um these sort of uh, meditation vigils are uh, are bearing witness uh uh events another another term for them are something that we see uh coming out of the uh, general sense of uh, engaged Buddhism that we often find in uh Buddhism in, in North America and um in this particular case though uh the people at Ekoji decided that they would do a meditation vigil specifically around uh the fact of slavery or I should say the legacy of slavery because Richmond, um, used to be, uh, uh, one of the most important slave markets in the entire South. In general, uh, it was a place of, uh, you know, uh, slavery. So, um, this was certainly regional in terms of the whole South as, as having this long slave history. And it was sort of locally, regionally as well, because, uh, Richmond and, uh, this part of Virginia was, uh, you know, very much, uh, a, a, a nexus of the slave trade. So, some of the people, uh, there at Ekoji, uh, began thinking about this and, and wanted to do something to deal with that fact of, um historical slavery and the ongoing legacy of, of slavery and we should say segregation, Jim Crow, all just the, uh, the discrimination that, that, that has occurred in this area. Um, and, uh, it's an interesting story actually because, uh, one of the, uh, people who, who initiated this was a, a teacher uh, who would visit the temple occasionally um, rather than being actually on site. A coach has no uh, permanent uh, ministers or monks or priests or, or of any type. So um, they would have this guy coming in occasionally from outside of the region, but he observed um, the way in which um, uh, there was a particular regional you know, uh, story of suffering, and, uh, he became intrigued about that. And, uh, as the people discussed it, they, they had this idea of doing the meditation region. So let me describe what it was. Basically, um, a, a number of, uh, people, um, about a dozen or so from the temple, um, uh, so walked along a slave, historic slave trail. They, uh, they started, uh, across uh, the James River at the site where slaves would have been unloaded after being brought up the river. They would be unloaded. And then they'd be forced in chains along this trail, which still exists, and up over the river to the other side, and then to downtown, uh, Richmond, where there were uh, a bunch of, uh, slave jails and slave, uh, uh, auction houses there. So they'd be sold off, uh, just separated from their families and such, and dispersed throughout the South, um, uh, to, you know, to be slaves in, in different areas. So, um, and this was, you know, there were slave markets in many places, but this is one of the major once, uh, for, for, the entire region. So many, many, many people came through there. Um, and I mean, this was a major industry for, uh, uh, for Richmond, uh, slavery and, uh, slave auctioning. So the, uh, the meditators gathered one uh, Saturday morning at the, uh, 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 disembarking site for the slaves. And then, uh, uh they walked a single file line along the slave trail, uh as you go through some woods currently and then along the uh next to the river and then over a bridge. Uh they walked silently, doing silent um sort of Zen type walking meditation. And uh they were wearing typically their uh you know sort of uh rock shoes these are uh a type of uh a Zen um small uh vestment that uh many people who've uh taken vows uh wear. Not all the people were Zen, but many of them were. So they had those sort of um vestments on. And, uh, they walk silently o- along the trail and over into downtown, right, then down to a place where they've, um, uh, now the, the city has set up, uh, what they call a slave, uh, reconciliation site, their slave trade, uh, memorial. And they have, um, a big statue, uh, carved out of, uh, this sort of a black rock of, uh, two, uh, humanoid figures embracing. It's somewhat abstract, but it clearly looks like two figures embracing each other. And, uh, there's, um, a little patch of, gra- of grass there, and there's some plaques that describe the slave trade and everything. And it's, it's, it's this sort of slave trade, uh, memorial, uh, park that they've set up there. And, um, so the people meditated, walked along the slave trail, and then sat down, um, uh, in front of this statue. They used the statue as, um, their, uh, zone, their, uh, their image of, uh, uh, sort of worship or veneration or, or object of focus. Um, uh, uh, uh held a service there. They uh, offered some flowers and some incense in front of it as if it were a Buddha statue and uh, uh, did some chanting uh, of uh, Buddhist scriptures there. And they uh, all sat in a circle, uh, more or less, there on the grass, and they held a meditation vigil all, all day long um, where they sat there and um, they were they were bearing witness to or acknowledging um, the uh, historic fact and effects of that slave trade and, and the ongoing discrimination. Against African Americans. And, um, this went on, like I say, all day. And, and at the end, uh, they broke up. And then, uh, the next day they did have, they had a discussion about it at the Ekoji Temple. Uh, so many additional people beyond the ones who just were actually there on that Saturday morning, many others heard about it and got to learn about the experience. Um, uh, many of the participants I talked to found this to be a very moving, very important, uh, practice for them. And, um, of course, as they're sitting there, you have people walking by all the time. This is downtown in a busy area. Even though it was Saturday, there were many people around. Some of them stopped for a while and meditated with them or uh, talked with them about what was going on. So it, it had a wider public presence than the temple often takes. The temple often seems to kind of fly under the radar uh, because they uh, sometimes don't have to. Um, some, some of their Christian neighbors uh, are uncomfortable with the Buddhists, and, and uh, some of the Buddhists are. Uh, afraid of what uh, Christians might uh, say or, about them or even do to them, so uh, they don't often look to have a very public face. This was quite a, a public event, but in a low-key, low-key, sort of way. We're just meditating. We're not, you know, shouting and carrying signs and this sort of thing. Um But it was, um, it was a way of acknowledging that that, that southern history and trying to uh, sort of process it. Um, anyways that's what it was and i can of course uh, go into further detail about various aspects of it But uh, let me take a pause here
0: no uh please uh i i think this is uh you know again i think it was a, a very interesting you know that's one of the things i think is interesting is that uh in the book you do talk a lot about how um as a consequence of living in a predominantly uh, evangelical christian environment many of the folks don't uh, are not openly buddhist so to speak um and yet here there was this moment where they they uh, were very very open and very very public um which is is very i think has has clear implications on how they expressed themselves um in a very uh uniquely southern way i think
1: yeah we find these uh, meditation vigils um in other forms and other places so for example um at uh, concentration camps in uh, Poland, mm-hmm. uh, a number of these very um, witness ones, um, uh, sometimes uh, there's some relationship to kind of the street retreats that Bernie Glassman Roshi has done in New York City. Uh, he also does some of the, uh, the ones in Europe. Um, sometimes you see meditation retreats um, in the Bay Area, like uh, you know at some of the prisons um, and this sort of thing. But uh, this idea of a slave trade meditation vigil this, you know, like I said, there was slavery all over the place, and yet this is very clearly tied to the local regional history. It's from that that, that emerges the, the need for this sort of thing. I mean, how many you might have had an underground railroad meditation uh, uh, vigil in, in the north somewhere that would have a rather different flavor than one that is uh, meditating on the on the fact of the of incredible, you know, crushing violent, dehumanizing history, uh much of it religious history that, that has taken place right there on that, you know, plot of ground, uh uh and, and in the surrounding uh, uh parts of the south there. Um it's something that people uh, felt that they needed to acknowledge, needed to deal with. Many of them had very emotional experiences. Um if you think about it, uh meditation as a, uh, which was the primary practice they did. Of course, they also had a service and they had some discussion and everything. The primary thing they did was silent meditation. There's often a stereotype of it as, um, a rather dull sort of, um, uh, uh, experience. You know, you don't, um, uh, hopefully you're not thinking a lot and you're you trying to clear your mind and it's, um, it's, uh, not, uh, not an emotional experience necessarily. Uh, um, there was, again, sort of stereotypes here but many of these people reported very emotional um very strong reactions um some of them felt that um uh, uh, as the day went on they they, they began to uh, experience uh, uh uh some sort of lingering of uh, of the uh slave experience There, people discussed uh with me how they heard uh, uh they they heard the sound of whips and they heard uh, people crying out in this sort of way uh whether however, we want to uh categorize these, whether they were uh imaginary phenomena or sympathetic phenomena or somehow actually tapping into some sort of um, uh uh, you know a uh, previous or ongoing uh you know effect on the area and you know uh I, I leave it to everyone else to decide for themselves what they want to make of this, but uh, the people themselves reported having these experiences during meditation, some of them became overwhelmed with them, began to cry, and um uh, were intensely moved by them. Uh, uh, you know, so there was this, this, this sort of, um, emotional energy that developed around meditating in this area on this, uh, regionally important, uh, history, which changed, uh, for some of them, uh, changed the way that they understood themselves as Buddhists and what Buddhist practice was about. And they weren't sitting now just to, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, decrease their stress or, uh, you know, maybe, uh, to achieve some sort of personal insight, but in a way, um, they were dealing with what they called, uh, uh, the reality of their collective karma is a phrase I heard some of them use. Um, that there was a collective karma in the South that had to be dealt with. Um, and that, uh, somehow meditation and Buddhist practice would help to surface and then deal with and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully positively affect this, uh, this collective inherited karma from, uh, a quite uh you know uh nasty past that they shared.
0: well again i think this is uh, this is great stuff and the book is a a, a, a joy to read <laughs> and it really pushes the boundaries in terms of uh, the field that i think you and i both uh, care deeply about so uh thank you again for sharing with us um uh, we usually end these interviews with a question about what uh what we can expect from you in the future if i remember correctly you are currently working on another book
1: yeah, that's right. Actually, I'm working on a couple of books, and I have a few other projects that are further down the line that are already kind of actively going on. But in particular, um, my next uh, uh, solo-authored um, uh, project is uh, currently the title is Mindful America, and it's looking at uh, mindfulness practice. And right now, just in the United States, um, uh, talking about how uh, mindfulness uh, has become such a uh, pervasive sort of technique. Uh, in so many different areas that it sort of uh, jumped out of the realm of Buddhism and it's become something, mindfulness practice is something that you find um, uh, in therapy, you find it in um, uh, schools, you find it in the prison system, you you find it uh, in in the court system. Uh, Mindfulness is now being taught to uh, uh, soldiers in the U.S. military uh, to help them to deal with uh, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, but also in some ways to help make them more efficient Carrying out their various uh, missions. Um, uh, you find uh, uh, this mindfulness everywhere. There's mindful eating, mindful parenting, mind- mindfulness at work. There are mindfulness based divorce lawyers. <laughs> it's everywhere in the US. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this book, which looks at that fact that this mindfulness, which is directly derived from Buddhism, this is probably the way that Buddhism has a single largest cultural impact on the United States. Um, and much of it being done by, a, you know, quote-unquote non-Buddhists. Uh, uh, so this is a Buddhist some become kind of like yoga and its ability to uh, uh, move beyond its uh, religious origins and become widely influential. On the other hand, I also want to talk about how Buddhism changes in the U.S., when it is so influenced by these, these American concerns, to it forth. So that now people are doing Buddhism to become better parents and to have better sex and to, um, be a more effective divorce lawyer and all this sort of thing. Um, there's something that changes in Buddhism when these very, this worldly concerns, uh, are, are, uh, brought to bear on what previously, uh, practice for, uh, detachment, not for the enhancement of pleasure in eating or sex or something like that, but actually as a way of, uh, basically separating yourself from the experience and, uh, uh, seeing it for, for what it was. Nothing, nothing too special. It was, uh, it was a practice that used to move on towards, uh, nirvana rather than, uh, to, um, become ever more committed to, um, you know, being a helicopter parent for your, uh, two year old or something like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing this book that looks at that very interesting, uh, uh, conjunction of american culture and buddhist mindfulness and how they're they're altering each other in various ways that uh, might have been rather unexpected Um uh, anyways that's the major project i'm working on and uh, looking at and uh hopefully that book may be out uh perhaps next year with the uh, oxford university Press. so that's that's uh uh quite fun to investigate what can i say?
0: Yeah, it sounds, it sounds great. I'm uh, really looking forward to that one, actually. Um, well, uh, I think we, we have uh, reached the end of our, our time together. Um, so I want to say thank you again, Jeff, for um, speaking with us today. And um, best of luck in your, in your new projects.
1: Well, thank you very much, Scott. Okay, take care.
0: You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies. And today we've been talking with Jeff Wilson, author of Dixie Dharma. Inside a Buddhist Temple in the American South. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Thanks for listening.